Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Linda, thank you so much for reading our lesson today, and grace and peace to each of you. Uh, It is so good to be in the Lord's house today with each of you. I have some really good friends that are here that I haven't seen in a long time. Anita and Janet Doris are with us. Anita, I haven't seen you since the fifth grade. Glendale Elementary School, you look exactly the same. And I know I do. Anita and Janet and their mother, Mrs. Doris, it's great to see you. We welcome you. It's a joy to have you. Uh, Zan Starnes Martin and her family are here today as well. She'll be joining the church today, and it's a great joy. Uh, Robert and Jeff and all of you to see you here and each of you. Thank you for the bells this morning. Greg, thank you for the wonderful bells. What a way to begin the service today. Drew and Walker, thank you for bringing the light to us today. Linda for the scripture, and Laura, thank you for your priestly prayer. We needed that. We're so grateful to you. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, or this is the first time you've been back in a while, let me tell you where we are in this series. We started two weeks ago on May the 1st uh, with a series called Joyful. And what we're doing is we're taking a a close-up look at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which I remind you, the church at Philippi was the first expansion of the gospel message onto European soil, Eastern Europe. And so this is the first time Paul was in Troas where he had this vision, Uh, Philippi, Europe was not on his GPS and he had this vision and God spoke to him through a needy man from Macedonia, come over and help us. And as always was the case with Paul, he responded to the vision. He never works alone, he took with him a team. He took Silas, uh, he took young Timothy, he even took his personal doctor, Dr. Luke with him And to Philippi they went. He is now writing 
this letter a decade later after he had established, founded that church. He's writing under house arrest from a Roman prison cell where he is bonded every day to a different security officer, to one of the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's finest, and he's writing this letter to what we have identified as his favorite church. Of all the churches he served, and we know pastors are not supposed to have favorite churches, you're not supposed to have favorite preachers, but you do, and I'm glad to be him. Anyway, (laughs) anyway, Philippi was probably his favorite church. And you say, how do you know that? Well, when you read these four chapters, you'll discover that he, wor- he uses the word, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times in four chapters. This is a special place where there's a deep bond, a deep affection between pastor and people. However, <laughs> this is not to say that this flock was without its issues. Sherry and I moved to, uh, to Nashville. We moved from Atlanta, as you all know, nine years ago. Uh, we were 31 years in Atlanta, serving churches all over the Atlanta area. And I remember one particular church, she'll remember it too, that was right across the street from Turner Field, where the Atlanta Braves used to play. Uh, and they advertised themselves like this, the perfect church. I used to drive by and confess on their behalf for this advertisement. It was there on the sign above the double doors, above the entrance, and every time I drove by, I would, I would laugh to myself because I knew that I could never be the pastor at the perfect church because I'd mess it up. You could never join the perfect church because you'd mess it up. Well, a few years before we moved here, I noticed a for sale sign in the yard And apparently, the perfect church is no more. The perfect church has closed. Paul is so affirming of this body in Philippi, but let's face it, she had issues. It's clear to me, if you read ahead in chapter 4, and I hope you will, that there's trouble in Philippi. We know that because there were two lay leaders, maybe Sunday school teachers, Uh, Two women, lay leaders, Euodia and Sintish, Paul calls them by name. How about that? He calls them out. These two had gotten sideways with each other. We have no idea what for. Maybe it was a theological dispute. Maybe they disagreed uh, on a particular text. Or, Or maybe, as is more often the case, maybe it was just a chemistry thing. Maybe they just didn't care for each other. Maybe it was a personality clash. Now, that, of course, never happens today. But it used to happen back in the first century. There may have also been some in the church who sort of felt left out, like they were not really a part of Paul's inner circle. Now, there's some who really like to be close to the pastor. Others don't want to get too close to the pastor until it's, uh, unless it's Dr. Brantley. Now, you want to get very close to her. But some people may have felt like they were not a part of the inner circle, and maybe they got their feelings hurt. I don't know. These things, they used to happen, but they never happened anymore. Every church has issues. Every church has issues because every church is composed of people who have issues, present company included. 
Paul begins chapter 2, interestingly enough, with one of my least favorite words in the English language. He begins with the word if. I don't care for if. If is a conjunction that casts a shadow of doubt or uncertainty in its path. For example, after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, when he heard, audibly heard, the voice of his father say, you're mine, you belong to me, you're my son, the next text after that, the next verse, Jesus is in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and Satan says, if you are God's son, turn these stones into bread. Prove it. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Fall down and worship. What's he doing? If. He's sowing a seed of doubt regarding Jesus' identity, sonship, personhood. He's implying Jesus your identity is iffy. Now, I don't know if that's really a word or not, but we use it a lot, don't we? Iffy. There's a lot of iffy things going on in the world, like baby formula, like Ukraine, like Buffalo, New York. It's a very iffy, uncertain time. Paul uses the if word repeatedly in chapter 2, but he doesn't use it to cast doubt. He's not questioning the sincerity of the Philippians' faith. He's actually affirming it. A better reading of this text would go like this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any consolation from love, and there is, if there's any sharing of the Spirit, and there is, is if any compassion and sympathy, and there is then make my joy complete. I want you to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full harmony and of one mind. It's interesting. There's another translation of this scripture that substitutes the word since for if. Since you have compassion and love, since you have sympathy for one another, since you share the same spirit, since you have encouragement, then he points them to an action so the if is not a question, it's an affirmation. And when I read that, it reminds me of a little bit of, of, of a poem that I remember memorizing in college. You remember the name Rudyard Kipling, a British Indian, wonderful poet, who wrote a poem by the same title, the conjunction if. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but maybe you'll remember. I'll, I'll read a couple of stanzas. If you can keep your head... When all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And what's more, you'll be a man, my son. Much of life feels iffy 
But Paul, like Kipling, uses the if word as an appeal to strength that leads to a course of action. What's the specific action that Paul's calling for? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Whew, we could stop right there and talk for a little while. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's a beautiful word, humilitas, it means ground, from the ground. Regard others as better than yourselves. Yeah, right. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. That's the action he's calling for in the church in Philippi. Now, it's not clear to me whether Paul is saying quit being selfish or don't start. I don't know if he's being prescriptive here or just preventative. We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul is concerned about the selfish eye. Paul is concerned about the pompous mind. The apostle is concerned about the ear that is hungry for compliments and the mouth that never speaks one. Paul is concerned that the church may have no room for another and the hand that only serves itself is what they're interested in. This may well have been the issue in Philippi. Religious pride, self-righteousness. Again, first century stuff, it never happens today. But when the preferred pronoun of the church becomes I instead of we, we got trouble. Have you ever noticed that the middle letter of the words sin and pride is I? My my biggest problem is not with the world. It's not with the government. It's not with the church. My biggest problem is not with you. My biggest problem is with me. I get in my own way sometimes in regard to my faith. I, it's lethal to community. This is why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he didn't say, when you pray, say, my Father. He said, our Father. This Bible is not yours. We don't say my Bible, my Jesus. This is, this is our scripture. This is our Bible. This is our Father. I read the other day that the one good thing, the one good thing about a narcissist is that he doesn't talk about others. <laughs> but Paul has a cure. Oh, I'm so glad he does. Whether it's prescriptive or preventative, it doesn't matter. There's a cure. There's a remedy. There's an antidote for pride, for me. And it's in our Christology. That's a big word. It cost me $30,000 at seminary, so I'm going to use it. Christology means our understanding of Christ. Our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church is found in our Christology, in the understanding of Jesus. When you understand who Jesus is, you understand who the church is to be. And you see this in verses 5 through 11, that this is really appropriate for Music City. It's a song. It's a hymn. I don't know if Paul wrote it or whether he's just reciting it, but, but this is the song in which we find the remedy for I. 
Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even even death on a cross. Therefore, here's the action, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to notice that I've italicized that top word, mind. In the Greek, phroneo. It doesn't just mean mental. It's not just intellect. It's attitude. Have this attitude in you. It's a co- an attitude is a combination of thinking and feeling. It's your mindset. It's your disposition. It's your outlook. It's your perspective. It's your state of mind. Have this mind in you that was in Christ. That's interesting. Paul makes clear more than once in the New Testament. You can find it again in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Paul makes clear more than once in the New Testament that it is possible for you and me to have the mind of Christ. I mean, why would Paul advocate us to do something that cannot be done, that's impossible? It is possible if we can learn to think like Jesus, we can actually learn to live like Jesus. It was Carl Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst, who said, thinking is hard. That's why most people judge. I sent that to a friend of mine in Lawrenceville. He's still my friend. He wondered if I was speaking to him specifically. I said, no, I sent this to all my friends, both of you. (laughs) And he responded by saying, I'm not sure thinking is always in my best interest. And I said, I don't think it's in your best interest, but I think it's in our best interest. This is a we proposition. There are four words in this poem, in this song, that all begin with E. I want to mention them briefly to you. Equality, exploitation, emptying, exaltation. Real quick. The first word, equality. The song proclaims that Jesus is in his very DNA, in his very nature, God. This is what scholars use to argue about the pre-existence of Jesus. John 1 says the Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning. That Jesus is in very nature God. He has parity with the Father. And yet, second word, and yet he did not regard this equality as something to be exploited. Did you know that's what temptation is all about? Satan tempted Jesus to abuse his gifts, to misuse his God-given gifts for himself, for his own benefit, turn these stones to bread, but he refused. It's always the same with sin. 
the, the trick is always the same. Sin is always the result of our desire to exploit God, to become God for myself. In fact, Adam in the garden fell for this because he too was made in the image of God, but he defied God and he deified himself. He became God for himself. And that's the trouble. That's, that's the nature of sin. And yet Jesus, who is the new Adam, he's the second Adam, didn't exploit the Father. He emptied himself. He humbled himself and became obedient even to a tree. And here's the next word. Because he emptied himself, God exalted him. This is exactly what Jesus taught, taught his disciples, Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself, you're going to be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, herself, will be exalted. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, a great man, a great woman, is always willing to become little. Not Mr. Big, but Mr. Lowly. And God does this for Jesus. He exalts him and gives him the name Kurios, Lord. And at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God. Now, I don't have to tell you, this is totally countercultural. I don't know about you, but I much prefer a rags-to-riches story, don't you? I used to hear it when I was growing up. Old folks would say, when I was, back, when, back in my day, they'd say, I had to walk eight miles to get to school. And somebody else would say, you had school? We just had to walk. Nowhere in particular. And on and on and on it would go. Rags-to-riches, someone born with nothing makes something out of nothing and becomes everything. But this, this is a riches to rags story. He had everything and he became nothing so that you might become something. That's a different story. That's a riches to rags story. We live in a culture where we preach upward mobility. Turns out God is downwardly mobile. He comes down to where we are. He becomes one of us so that we can become like him. Throw away the law of gravity at this point when you compare it with the law of incarnation. Law of gravity says what goes up must come down. Law of incarnation, what comes down must go up. Exalted, emptied himself. Greg Jones and Van Newkirk, do you know those names? Greg Jones, Methodist minister, new president at Belmont University, wonderful guy. And Van Newkirk, who is a lifetime uh, scholar, lifetime administrator, is the president of Fisk University. These two men of God recently had a meeting in which they were talking about our polarizations in our culture, our divisions and our schisms, and they mentioned five remedies that can strengthen Spiritual unity, all of them are products of humility. Number one, adopt an attitude of perpetual learning. Be a lifetime student. Number two, 
I love this. Form unlikely friendships. One-sided echo chambers influenced by social media will not help you. Form a friendship with someone that perhaps you'd rather not know. Number three, pursue canonic listening. The word canonic comes right out of Philippians 2. It means emptying. Pursue deep listening that sets aside my need to always be right. Number four, interpretive charity. Occasionally, interpret someone else's actions as doing the best they can because they probably are. And number five, engage on purpose, intentionally. On purpose, with love, with patience, with perseverance. It was Mr. Wesley who said, patience and humility are the sure sign of the increase of love. Why, that's right. Last word. I I talk way too much about two subjects. One is my grandson, the other is Radnor Park. I'm unrepentant about it, as I said last week, I can't help myself, but Radnor is my sanctuary. And oftentimes, I'll go out and walk on Friday or Saturday afternoon. I'll carry my notes with me for the sermon. I'll talk to myself, which is what I often do when I need an educated opinion. (laughs) People think I'm a little bit loony. You take out the little bit part, and they're probably right. But I found myself, as, as I walk on that path, speaking to people. And sometimes I get so focused on me and myself and, and my words and my needs that I just don't see you. I don't see people. You can preach all day and never see an eye and never see a face. But I've learned as I walk out there that people I pass have needs too. They have issues. Everybody does. And I found myself not really... I don't know that I want to, I just do. I I try to speak to every person that crosses the path. And it's not because I'm any better than anybody else. Most of the time it's because I'm lonely. And I have discovered that sometimes just meeting someone's eye or speaking someone's name or saying, hello, how are you? it, It changes the walk, it changes the path, changes mine. And whenever I see that sign right off the path that says fragile ecosystem, I think you're darn right. (laughs) We're living in a fragile ecosystem that is so full of I and me and my. And I hear the voice of the apostle say, consider others before yourself. If Jesus will give you his mind, if you can have the mind of Christ, you can learn to walk like Jesus. And that's why Paul is writing letters. And that's why we're preaching sermons. And that's why we're living the faith. God help us to do it.